0: Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Well, welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters. As you can see, we are on our second episode that we're recording um, on a trip back from Rethink previous
1: episode. We kind of gave an overview of Rethink, and
0: then this episode we thought we might be Talk a little bit about Herman Newticks right that's the dude's name Herman Newticks yeah at
1: this point can you do the cutscene with the Joel Osteen meme please yeah we,
0: we will definitely put the meme in there absolutely that is great uh, well that will only work for the video people so yeah. they've laughed now we need to let the
1: other people laugh so the the meme is Joel Osteen says Herman Newticks question mark I don't think I know him uh-uh. <laughs> So today we wanted to discuss uh, just hermeneutics 101, basically going through how to read your Bible, really. Um, how do you get from reading the words that are on the page to applying it to your life? What are the steps to understanding it? What are the steps between what am I reading and what does it mean to me today? And, and when is that a valid question to ask? And when is that an invalid question to ask because sometimes you you have to apply different rules to different passages based on literary genre, when they were written, to whom they were written, why they were written, and we want to be consistent and not just kind of let the scriptures be Plato or Silly Putty and make them whatever we feel like we want them to be.
0: Right, so I had a couple courses in college, we had to read a couple books. Um, one was called how to read the Bible for everything it's worth how to read the Bible like its literature um, there's a, a lot of people have talked about this because obviously the Bible is more complicated than you know Dr. Seuss or even some novel it's written by how many authors I'm 40 40 different author authors over 1,500 years or so um,
1: so 66 books a lot of literary genres
0: yeah so it's not something that you should expect to be able to read maybe one time and just understand it completely um i there's still passages that i'm like "Uh, i don't really know what's going on here most of the time that's jesus i think jesus is some of the hardest uh, to understand
1: when he's talking to different people, you're like, I uh, I think this is what he's saying. I'm not very sure, especially in the parables. Right. Sometimes I'm like, Pat, I, I get the big picture, but I'm not sure how deep into the details were intended to go. Is it just get this one main concept, or right? Yeah. So, um,
0: this style that we would put forward, uh, I think I was told we were told is historical grammatical. So we want to take into account both the historical setting that the passage is written in and also the grammar or the uh, language being used. Uh, Greg Kochold has famously called this, never read a Bible verse. And the point there is not that he doesn't want you to read the Bible, but that if you want to know what any single verse means, oftentimes we've got to read the verses around it. Um, to understand its context. Sometimes the verses around it, maybe two or three verses. If you're reading Proverbs, which incidentally I think is the most common book for people to read like long chapters out of, because they'll read they'll read a full chapter of Proverbs for the day of the month that it is, which is good. Yeah. Um, but it's but that's fifteen topics right. per day. Right. Proverbs is the one book that is like short little chunks that are not really related. But so if you're reading Proverbs, maybe it's two or three verses to understand. If you're reading Chronicles, maybe it's two or three chapters.
1: Or more. Or more. And it might have been six chapters before, and then a break, and then it picks it up again. Right. Yeah. So you, you got to read and kind of know what's going on in order to understand, okay, how is this verse being used in the overall context? Which to that end, to so the basic point, if yeah. you had to summarize it in one sentence, how would you describe proper hermeneutics? You're asking me? Yeah. Um, I would
0: say you need to read the verse and understand its placement in the overall flow of Scripture. Period. Yeah. Sometimes that flow of Scripture is larger than others. Uh, did you have a sentence in mind?
1: Uh, I think what I would highlight is that it's very important to understand what the original author meant to the original readers. Because if you can't get that foundation down, you're never going to bridge to what the universal truths are. You know, there there are pieces of the Scriptures that I believe are not directly applicable to us today at all. Still useful, still worth reading, still worth knowing, still teach us about God, but promises to Israel, some of them, I believe, don't apply to me in any way, shape, or form. Most folks,
0: when they hear these principles, they agree. Oh, yeah, those sound like good principles. And then we start applying those principles to a particular verse that they may have some emotional connection to, and they say, "Oh, that you're telling me that verse didn't mean what I always wanted it to mean." Right. I don't like your principles anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and. What you were kind of hitting on about what a verse originally meant um, from the author to the people, um, I, I had posted in our Theology Matters group that a verse can never mean what a verse never meant. Right. And so there's, it's very popular today you know, to read one verse and try to extrapolate what
1: that verse means to me today. Oh, that's such a pet peeve of mine. You're sitting around in a Bible study, you read a passage, what does this mean to you?
0: Who cares? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I do want to. So, typically when you're interpreting the Bible, it has, you know, one meaning, potentially multiple applications of those truths. Right. And so, once we establish what the original author, we Spirit through that author intended to say, um, then we can say, all right, here's the truth. Potentially there's more than one application of that, of that truth. Sometimes that may not be just an async verse the, if you didn't already know, let us let you in that the verses weren't original to the writings. Right. Neither were the chapters. They were added later to help you find different places. So you could cite different places. Um, and so just because there's a new verse there doesn't mean there's necessarily a new idea. Even new chapters. Right, yeah. sometimes the chapters break right in the middle of the
1: flow of thought. Um, Prime example of that, if you want to check it out, the end of Acts 4 and the start of Acts 5, I'm convinced that Luke is telling two different sides of what the church looked like with regards to giving. At the end of chapter 4, you have Barnabas selling a piece of land and laying all of the money at the apostles' feet. At the beginning of chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira selling a piece of land and bringing some of the money and then lying about it. There's a hard chapter break there and so a lot of times people divorce those stories as if they're two somewhat somewhat related. I think they are one story. Two sides of the same topic being shown. Right, And, and there's lots of those examples. Right. And so
0: I think we've mentioned before, I'm an old earth creationist. Uh, If you don't know what that is, I don't believe in evolution, but I happen to believe that the earth is old. Um, I'm still a creationist that God created uh, stuff, especially. You're not an old earth creationist. You're at least a new earth creationist, if not a young earth creationist, right? Yeah. So we've talked about Moses' use of the word yom before, and I think we both agree that there are four literal interpretations of that word. It could be when the day, when the the sun's out, when it's light out. It could be a 24-hour period of time. It could be a calendar day, like the fifth fifth day of Nisan. Or it could be a longer, indeterminate period of time. It's used that way in the Old Testament. So in order for my view to be right, Moses would have had to know when he was saying you know on the second day these are the things that happened he couldn't have thought that he was writing 24-hour day and that be and have my view be right right he would have he would have had to have originally been writing that uh, with oh this is a longer period of time I don't necessarily think he would need to know that it was many many you know many, 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 many years, he would just have to be using definition for Right. right. Um, so if you have some interpretation of a verse that kind of goes against that rule, then you probably have an invalid uh, interpretation. I will make one exception to this. The New Testament writers, sometimes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will take an Old Testament verse. Like the one that comes to mind, I think Paul says, so you you won't, you won't shouldn't muzzle the ox while it's turning. Maybe you could go, well, from that I'm going to say you should pay your pastors. But Paul specifically pulls that out and says, by this we know that you should pay your pastors. Well, the Holy Spirit is inspiring this. So if the Holy Spirit wants to add new meaning to some verse that an apostle trained by Jesus who has been blessed to write, they get that prerogative. We
1: don't get that prerogative. The only other one that I can think of would be, um, seems like Peter says that a lot of times, prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write prophecy that they didn't f- at least fully understand, right? Yeah, that would be a caveat. Like, so
0: you're, you have a prophet, maybe even Isaiah, where he says, a virgin shall conceive. You may not have it fully understood how that play out. But right. we see New Testament writers, adding meaning to that saying well this is this is jesus all right so any other foundational rule stuff you think of are we going to talk about how we read well we did have some verses that
1: we were going to talk about did you want to talk a little bit before we get into the verses i think we can keep going with technique for a little bit yeah so like michael said um A verse generally exists inside of a paragraph, Um, or let's even talk maybe sentences instead of verses because I think that's sometimes the, the verse breaks are really wonky and just right in the middle of thoughts and all, but you take a sentence and that's in the middle of a paragraph, that's in the middle of a chapter, that's in the middle of a book, the book has its own place in the course of revelation from God. And to rightly understand that verse, you at least need to look at the local context. But I would highly encourage people, if you're going to be teaching, to look at it within the context of the book and then kind of pull the lens out even more and try to see, okay, if I'm looking at Romans chapter 8, how does this verse fit into Romans 8? How does Romans 8 fit into the book of Romans? How does Romans fit into the overall scope of Scripture? And if if your interpretation of a verse doesn't make sense at any of those levels then you need to rethink your interpretation of that verse. If, If your interpretation of a verse relies on the most unlikely way to translate a word out of the original language, that's possible. But if you're having to do a lot of that in order to get your interpretation to work, that's a sign that perhaps you're not interpreting it correctly. So just dealing with the text honestly, what does it actually say? I think that's an important first thing to get to. A couple of the verses that we're going to go through, one in particular, I think we frequently trip at that step. And then what it means is completely different in the common interpretation because what what it actually is saying is something that we don't get well. So just just working through from what does it say to what did it mean to the original hearers, and then was that a cultural meaning that was tied to the culture, or do we see this being some kind of an overarching eternal law of God that's being implemented, um, and only then can we say okay, so what is what is the meaning today? Has it maintain the exact same meaning and everything that the original readers read is exactly the same for us or have there been any shifts based on time based on culture whatever Uh, and i'm much more likely to think that it means the same thing for us today i'm i'm willing to say that some things are cultural but that's definitely not my default position
0: One of the elders at our church taught on spiritual gifts one time, and he made the point that even though it's not the case in our Bibles for the order of the books, that 1 Corinthians um, was written uh, way ahead of Romans and Ephesians. 1 Corinthians, you see Paul having to deal with improper use of the sign gifts, but then in later times, when the gifts are listed there there's not even the sign gifts listed I don't know how hard you press on that but I think it might be a clue that at least at that point in time sign gifts were an issue because these believers weren't having to work out how does that how how are they being used because it's not addressed it's an argument from silence mentally a weaker weaker form of the argument but either you'd have to say well they, they got sign gifts down. Like they weren't misusing and they were using the sign gifts right. Or sign gifts weren't a problem.
1: Uh, or weren't, pardon me, they weren't in. in uh, they weren't an issue. They, they weren't in use at that point in time. So, kind of parallel to that, towards the end of his ministry, Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy's having a health issue. And Paul gives him medicinal advice. There's not somebody there that heals stomach issues. Again, not conclusive, but definitely indicative.
0: All right, so do you want to
1: pick up um, Yeah, so um, we'll go to uh, a beloved verse, uh, a favorite verse. It is no longer the most commonly quoted verse in English. Thanks to? Matthew 7. All right. Is it that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, judge not lest ye be judged. Yeah. I was thinking you're going with Tim Tebows, so I can do all things. Philippians four thirteen. Yeah. Yeah, well so John three sixteen is where we're going. Yeah. Uh, for a long time that was the one you saw at all games and everybody everybody probably still knows it, but these days, judge not lest ye be judged is kind of a fan favorite, so to speak. right. right. Uh, and I think we probably all know why that's the case. Yeah. Uh, and if somebody quotes that to you, when you are trying to express a moral opinion, uh, all they've basically done is told you that they haven't read the entire paragraph, because they wouldn't be quoting that if they understood the context. Right. Just, just if they took the first step to go to the paragraph level, that uh, that entire argument breaks down. But And you can just say,
0: so you think I'm wrong for what I'm saying?
1: <laughs> yes, so why are you judging me for it? Right. <laughs> uh, uh, So anyway, John 3.16, I'm reading out of my ESV, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this was actually a verse that came up when I was talking with Zach, the uh, Pentecostal Arminian, at Rethink. And... He points to this verse in order to support the idea that all people have the ability to have to place their faith, to choose to place their faith in Christ. In this verse, if you understand it, doesn't speak to ability or not ability. Correct. Yeah, th- this is not a Calvinism proof text, but, but if you actually go back to the original Greek and understand what the English is saying, there's no ability that's being discussed here. It's a verse that's about the mechanics of salvation. So are you saying that you have to know Greek in order to understand the Bible? Uh, I think at times it can be helpful because, no, not in general, but for John three sixteen, it is such a central verse that is so known by everybody that most modern translations really don't want a monkey with the KJV rendering all that much. Okay? I think the KJV was a, an excellent translation of John 3.16 400 years ago. I also think that some of the words that have stayed in there aren't used now in the same way that they were used 400 years ago. So, two problems
0: I see. And just so you know, I'm KJV only with all of my audiences 300
1: years old and older. I am too. So. Yeah. Yeah. If you were born prior to 1700, KJVO, do not come to a modern version. <laughs> all right. So there's two problems in John 3:16. One is the word so, and one is the word whoever or whosoever. Okay? For God so loved the world. He is not talking about how much God loved the world. That's how we read it. That's how we hear it. That's how we use the word "so." If I say "God so
0: loved the world," then you are. But I'm I'm adding an English emphasis that you
1: wouldn't find in the Greek. Correct. And in fact, uh, Bill Mounts, who is a very famous Greek teacher, he wrote the Greek textbook that almost everybody uses for first year Greek. He recently put out a survey that was asking people to come and comment. Because he wants to come up with a new translation for John three sixteen, just for these types of issues. Because you have the word so in there, you have the only, slash, unique, slash, only begotten. How do you translate that concept out of the Greek? And then... That's monogonese. Yes. Yeah. And then you have this issue with um, whosoever. And he even recognizes, and he's an Armenian, but he recognizes that... The verse isn't an Arminian proof text. And so, honestly, it makes Arminians look bad when they try to use it because it just shows that they don't really understand the verse. So, getting back to the so. What the so means coming out of the Greek is in this way. So, it's not an intensifier of the word, of the verb love. It's not God loved the world so much. It's God loved the world in this way, colon. And then it tells us in what way God loved the world, right? Now, I think you can make an argument that Him sending His Son to be the Savior of the world is a large love. Right. And I think there are other verses that explicitly say that. I'm not arguing against the concept. What I'm saying is John 3.16 doesn't say it. Right. John 3.16 says, this is the kind of love that God showed us. Okay? Whosoever. It's, it's a fine translation when you understand what whosoever can mean and what it means in this particular con- context, but basically the idea is, in, in the Greek it's pa ha, pas ha, pistou, so all the believing ones, or all the ones who believe, or everyone who believes, or whoever believes, or whosoever believes, right? So all it's saying is that for everyone who is in the category of believing in the Son, they are also in the category of receiving eternal life right. and in the category of not perishing. Right. It's, it's, it's more of like a mechanism of, there's no one that believes that gets left out of eternal life and not perish It doesn't say anything about who can or cannot believe.
0: Yeah, I don't really have anything to add. you covered it well. Um, you can almost think of it as a big diagram Believing ones, if you're in this circle, then you're in the ones that get eternal life, and you're in the ones that don't perish. That's really all he's saying. Right. Um, He's not really speaking to ability, so this is not a, a
1: verse that should be a proof text for either side of the soteriology debate. Right. I mean, it's, well, not the Calvinism versus Arminianism. Correct. It is a good proof text for... What is salvation, and how do we get it? It is right. by faith only. Sure. How do yeah. we know that? Well, John three sixteen is a great support for that. All the ones who believe receive eternal life. There's nothing else mentioned than that, and there's many verses like that. But it does it does tell us some things, but it does not tell us all of it. It's pressed into service for which it's not intended. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's move
0: on to um, yeah. So. When I was in college, I actually changed my major twice. I had three different majors, and um, I was given a keychain, and uh, I read this keychain, and it had this verse on it. And I can't say it meant a lot to me at that time because I was like, I don't really know where I'm going, what I'm doing. I have a lot of questions. I what I thought I knew I was going to be doing with the rest of my life, I, I'm not going to be doing. And I got this key change that says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for a future and for a hope. And I really banked on that. And then as I grew and read the word and heard people talk, uh, it was a little bit uncomfortable for me. That verse that I kind of leaned on during those tough times, maybe I shouldn't have leaned on it so heavily, Jeremiah is actually writing to folks that are in, or will be in captivity in Babylon. And he's telling them, hey, go ahead, kind of assimilate with the culture, buy houses, set up farms, do business. And I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to bless you. This is a message from God to those people who are in captivity. And he tells them, Because you know why? Because I've got a plan for you people. And it's not to be in Babylon forever. It's for a future and for a hope. And for a restoration of your crops. And for a return of your wealth. And for all these other things that fall below those verses. And in fact, he goes on to say, And you Jews who stay in this land, who don't go into captivity, I have... I mean, it's for you to famine and pestilence and hunger and all these bad things but for some reason we don't quote those verses we don't try to claim those promises where we have
1: God talking about bad things right just the just the good ones so um, let's practice what we preach <laughs> let's read the context just read it, okay so the verse in question of Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven. if you go up to verse 4 So, before the verse, it said, Thus says the Lord of Hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Obviously, they're going to be there a while. I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Here's the key verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes, and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, The Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten that they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence. and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, which you would not listen declares the lord
0: so it seems pretty straightforward it's a particular message from god to a particular people in a particular circumstance way back when doesn't apply to us either one of them so let, let me give you a response that i've heard well i understand it's to those people in babylon but can't we Apply it to our, to us. Even though that's the truth, can I make an application of that verse to me today? How would you respond to someone making that claim? No. (laughs) Okay, but why not?
1: Because you're not a member of Israel that has been taken into captivity in Babylon. Yeah. So uh, I mean, it's such a selective pulling out of the promise, too. I mean, would you? Do people condition their understanding of Jeremiah 29 11 on them calling upon God, coming to Him, and praying to Him? Or do they just think, well, God's got a plan for me? Um, do we say that we have to seek God with all of our heart or else we can't find Him? Um, is God going to gather us back from where He has driven us to, to where? I mean, right. it, it, it's not. It's not a buffet of prophecies and promises where you can decide, I want a little bit of that one, but no thanks. Over. I mean, right. th- this is a, a whole thing that has different parts, but all of it applied to the people who had gone to Babylon and to selectively pick out one thing and say, I'm going to apply that to me because I like it. Is I mean, that's just bad hermeneutics. Yeah, and I have, I understand what you're saying, and you're, we're 100% agreement.
0: When people ask me that, I have said, yes, well, you, you can. He well, knows the plans He has for you. That's what you can take out of it.
1: He yeah. does know the plans He has for you. Well, there's that. <laughs> I've also heard this kind of response, so I'll give it to you and hear how you would respond. So what you mean is you don't believe that God has good plans for me. You don't believe that God wants to prosper me. How do you reply to that? I would say...
0: I need to understand what you mean by good plans for you, prosper for you. If you are a child of God, I know that he wants the best for you. And the best for you is the conformance of your life to the image of his son. That's what Romans 8, 28, 29 says. It's not that you're gonna be rich. It's not that you lost this girlfriend, but he's gonna give you a better girlfriend. It's I want you to be conformed to Christ. I want you to have Christ like this. And the testimony of the New, New Testament is sometimes a lot of times we're going to have hard times. Jesus in his uproom uh, discourse says you know, in this world you will have tribulation but take heart I've overcome the world. Um, so sometimes God does not intend good stuff for us in our earthly walk, he intends tough stuff. James says, You'll count it all joy when you get into various trials and tribulations because the testing of your faith is going to produce in you character and you're going to be able to learn from that and get wisdom. And he talks about praying for wisdom. So the, the answer is, Does God want good
1: stuff for us? Yes, if good is properly understood. Right. Well, that's my response is we should not go to Jeremiah 29 11 not written about us, it's given it is, to a specific audience at a specific time in a specific context. That said, we can go to Romans 8, which is given to a specific audience, which is all believers, uh, at a specific time, I believe it's an eternal truth from the cross onwards, and we can we can go there, and without abusing the text in any way, we can say, God intends good. We need right to rightly define that, I agree. but. Right. For those who love God and who are called according to His purpose, all things will work out for their good. Right. To me, that's honestly a bigger promise than you see in Jeremiah 29. Right. All they were promised was some kind of material blessing that they, they would be brought back. And, and they, they would find, I mean, I'm not trying to downplay that, but we, we have better promises that we can look to without having to manipulate the text. So let's go there when okay. we can embrace the whole thing. Yeah, and just to hitch on what you're saying,
0: there were certainly people who experienced the promise of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven who weren't true believers. They're they're spending an eternity in hell. Everyone who gets the promise of Romans eight twenty eight twenty nine thirty, they may have a bad time here on earth, but they're going to one be conformed to His image. He's sanctifying them. And two, they're going to spend an eternity in the beatific vision of God and bliss and all the goodness that comes from it. So yeah, it's a much greater promise. Um, it just may not mean that we have temporal ease and peace. Right.
1: Uh, and there was a funny Babylon Bee about this that, you know, a guy getting a Jeremiah twenty nine eleven tattoo was reflecting on the time of his captivity in Babylon. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. All right, last one. Um, I I think this one will be a little bit quicker after Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, but Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Um, and yeah, I I gotta mention it. I I mentioned this to you a minute ago, but it wasn't long ago on Facebook that I saw this verse in a Bible that was outlined to make it an American flag, and uh, our astute listeners will know. Well, I've already read the reference, but if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Yeah. That is a prophecy to America, right? No. no.
0: And let me say from the outset, if you are God's people, you should humble yourself. You should pray to him. And you should ask for him to do good things that's not what we're saying right please do that Um, but that doesn't mean that this promise has you in mind um when when uh it's being said and this is one of those places where you got to read a couple chapters back to figure out what's going on um so this is right after the dedication of the temple And during the dedication of the temple, Solomon, in his wisdom, although he later kind of walks away from his wisdom, he knows that it it may be the case that Israel walks away from the Lord, and he prays this long prayer, and he says, Lord, if we fall away, and you bring all this bad stuff to us, and you do this, and you do this, but if your people... Who are called by your name will humble themselves and return to you will you restore the land and all these things smoke comes into the temple people leave later on solomon has this vision where god comes him and he answers that prayer and this is the prayer that he's answering and he says yes if i do these bad things and if i do these bad things and if i do these bad things and then you humble yourselves and you call on my name then i will do all these good things for you it's a very if then direct answer to solomon's prayer during the dedication of the temple
1: it's not for america well and if you're quoting a verse in the esv verse 14 is a continuation of a sentence from verse 13. I, i would strongly urge people that it's almost always, if not always, inappropriate to quote only part of a sentence and act as if that's an idea that stands on its own, right? So all in this case, I think all you have to do initially to see that this is a bad interpretation is go up one verse and just read the whole sentence that it's a part of, because in verse 13 it says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land sinned pestilence among my people, comma. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I mean that just like you said, it is there there are a whole lot more pieces in play directly tied to what's being said. And you quote that seven fourteen by itself and that's completely lost, right?
0: All right, well, hermeneutics 101. Um, Next time, 102. Yeah, 102, or 101A, or 101B, maybe, yeah, however we want to number it, so. (laughs) Part two, something like that.
1: Okay. well, that's that one. Uh, We'll leave you with this. Think well, walk humbly, love mercy, and do justice. Thanks. Bye.
0: You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology.